Jody Vance in for Jill this week. We were just listening to TransLink CEO Kevin Desmond making the announcement uh, that effective August 24th, masks will be mandatory on TransLink and a BC Transit as well. There are a few exemptions, excuse me, of course, for TransLink's mandatory face covering policy. That includes anyone with an underlying medical condition or disability, which inhibits the ability to wear a mask or face covering, persons unable to place or remove a mask or face covering without assistance, kids under five years of age, they are exempt, employees working behind a physical barrier within areas designated for employees and not for public access, they are exempt, Um, police, employees or first responders in an emergency. So I wanted to uh, talk through a little further when it comes to the employee piece. And for that, we welcome back to the program, Gavin McGarrigal, who's the Western Regional Director for Unifor. Hi, Gavin. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm glad to have you on today. Certainly, there was a lot of talk. I'm not sure. Um, well, actually, I am sure that you were listening in on uh, TransLink CEO Kevin Desmond's press conference there and and how he was very specific around the the, the questions that are fairly obvious here because the, the union members will be put in a position of of enforcement, or at least the the uh, optics of being an, in, an an enforcement tool here. Uh, how has the conversation been between uh, the union and TransLink when it comes to mandatory masks? It's been something that's been talked about uh, in a more generalized sense uh, over the past uh, little while, and you know our position has always been consistent that you know we have a lot of faith in the public health officer and. You know, we want our members to be safe. We want the riders to be safe, but we also, you know, want them to be paying close attention to security because you're right, the optics, uh, you know, people might want to take it out on the drivers. And we've certainly seen some negative reactions in other jurisdictions. So uh, we've been clear that our members are there to focus on driving the bus safely and uh, that transit security, police, et cetera, uh, if there's any issues, they need to be uh, really vigilant on that. So that's our main concern. Uh, but we also want to make sure that, uh, you know, if we can get a higher percentage of people uh, on transit wearing masks, that's, that's a good thing. And uh, hopefully that will keep uh, everyone safer. And safety seems to be at the forefront here, and I think everybody's in this together. Tense times, no doubt, uh, but ridership sitting at about 40%, and Mr. Desmond pointing out that they're not so scientific, uh, uh, I guess, stats show that about 40% of people are wearing masks currently, not enough, and wanting that to get up to that 90% that we're seeing or that Mr. Desmond said that he's been seeing in other jurisdictions like in Ontario and Quebec. What are some of the pushbacks that you were mentioning there with regard to enforcement uh, in other jurisdictions? What have you been hearing? What stories? Well, it's just, you know, I think it's, it's been all over the news in, in various ways. Uh, we saw, you know, some some people uh, being assaulted. I think in France there was a, a bus driver that was uh, ended up losing his life because of somebody... Uh, somebody attacking them over this. So, you know, we're, we're very concerned. Uh, we hope that British Columbians will be better. But, you know, unfortunately, transit uh, drivers uh, do face assaults uh, from time to time. Some of them have been quite serious. We've been vocal and active on that for years. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it is considered under the criminal code uh, as a result of, of our union and many others' uh, efforts uh, to be an aggravating factor if you're, if you're attacking a, a public transit worker. But, you know, that's, that's after the fact. So that doesn't deal with the fact that we want to make sure that there's security out there, that they're keeping an eye on that. Most people, I think British Columbians have demonstrated that most people are pretty reasonable, uh, but yeah. there's always a, a very small number. And, you know, that's what our drivers are telling us as well, that roughly 40% are wearing masks. So if we get it up 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, then that's, that's a good thing. And, um, you know, hopefully they'll, they'll have enough security there to deal with any issues. And it was interesting to listen to Mr. Desmond speak specifically about the harassment concerns. And he almost got emotional when he was like appealing to the best judgment of citizens to have compassion here to their fellow riders and also to uh, the drivers and employees. And we really that we really need to trust each other in this and and just have to trust that, that somebody not wearing a mask is doing so with good reason. Well, um, newsflash, I'm agreeing with Mr. Desmond for once. So, <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Dr. Henry has been saying for months that we need to to be kind and be patient with each other. It has been uh, an extra stress on all of the frontline workers who have been out there. Um, you know, we had to go through a few months ago the threat of, uh, you know, 1,200 layoffs uh, that uh, thankfully was averted. 
Um, you know, but but really, uh, our members are getting up every day, making sure the public is safe, those essential service workers, and uh, they're just trying to do their job and go home to their families like every worker. So I think we just need to be kind, care for each other, and realize that everything that's being mandated is, is uh, based on science, uh, the best science that we have with the best situations we have, and, and we do the best we can. We have safety committees on the ground, elected safety committee members in, in all the major depots. Uh, we work closely with the company where we can to give suggestions and improvements when they were bringing in the, the uh, temporary shields, for instance, if we were looking at angles of glare, uh, you know, could, could the driver see properly? Uh, you know, none of it's a perfect situation, but we, it, it's, a, it's a work in progress every single day. So, uh, yeah, be kind to the drivers out there. They're, they're just doing their job. And uh, please try to listen to the, the, uh, the request to wear masks. It's designed to keep us all safe. It is really rooted in safety. We're with Gavin McGarrigal, the Western Regional Director for Unifor. And uh, when you say our frontline workers, and and specifically those who have been uh, on transit, which has been a very hot topic with regard to masks, there possibly could be uh, quite a big deal or a big piece that is relief here for those who are our frontline transit workers, because Mask wearing is really for the other, right? Keeping each other safe. It doesn't protect oneself oneself necessarily to wear a mask, but it is it is your single kindest act to your community, your fellow citizen by by donning a mask. And how have how has the reaction been from workers uh, with this news? Anything? Uh, uh, quite positive so far. I mean, our members are, are like the general public as well. We have the range of opinion, but uh, you know. Uh, the 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 groups that I'm on and and the news that we've been sharing has been quite positive from our members. As I said, safety is a day in and day out thing. So you know, there's always concerns about you know making sure that the cleaning is being done appropriately, making sure that any specific situation is addressed appropriately. So every day in a massive transit system like this, um, you know, there are new challenges. But we have. Uh, you know, uh, elected work, worker representatives on the ground working with their company counterparts to try to deal with it. So nothing's ever perfect, but, um, you know, this is about caring for each other and it is about uh, making sure that, that we have a transit system that works. And it also directly, you know, the, the better the transit system works and the safer everyone is, uh, the better chance that we can avoid, you know, going back into huge lockdown that we've seen in some of the, you know, U.S. states where it just becomes a chaos. So if we can keep on the same trajectory by taking these simple steps, um, then we should do that. And that allows more workers to get to their jobs and uh, ultimately allows people to to uh, try to mitigate some of the, the very, very serious economic uh, impacts of, of all of the closures. You know, we represent workers in 22 different industries and uh, it's been it's been constant uh, every single day. You look at hotel workers, 95, 98 percent of them laid off. Uh, yeah. You look at uh, workers in Air Canada, uh, you know, uh, workers in the energy sector. So it is a, this is a significant uh, situation. And so we're trying to keep the economy going while making everyone safe. And, and if masks on transit uh, allows more people to get to their jobs and do so safely, uh, then again, that's a good thing. So that's the ultimate goal, I think, for everyone. Get through this safely, keep those incidents as low as possible, and uh, and hopefully have some, some kind of an economy uh, where people can pay their bills. Let's be in it together. Thank you for your time today. As always, it's appreciated. Yeah, thanks very much, Jody. Jody Vanson for Jill this week. And like many countries around the globe, the Canadian government announced a commitment today of up to $5 million in recovery relief for Beirut after that massive downtown port explosion on Tuesday. Absolutely terrifying cell phone footage uh, caught that blast. The force of it, the mushroom cloud, it just absolutely decimated the downtown port. So we want to put this blast into context. And for that, I want to bring in the international affairs columnist and foreign correspondent, Matthew Fisher, who's written on this topic. And and really, it is a must read at globalnews.ca. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me, Jody. Putting this blast into context is really quite something. I remember, like, I watched it moments after it happened when it was breaking news and sort of watching that plume, the initial plume that looked like fireworks were going off below at the base of of that smoky plume. And then all of a sudden, that mushroom cloud and the force and the shockwave, what did we witness there? Well, I think for a lot of people, it reminded them of all those stark images of nuclear explosions 
that you tend to start seeing when you're in public school in Canada and, well, frankly, just about everywhere else in the world. Uh, But it wasn't, of course, a nuclear attack. And the mushroom cloud is not because of uranium or plutonium in the explosion. It is just the force, uh, the great force that's there. And this this blast had a tremendous amount of TNT in it. Uh, It was about 80% of the blast that hit the Halifax Harbor in 1917. And that one killed thousands of people. This one looks like it has killed uh, something above 100, but certainly not near the thousands. Not that there isn't a lot of destruction and whatnot. There's billions of dollars of that. But the, the other thing that was very interesting about it, and you can see it also in those nuclear films, uh, explosion films, is after the mushroom cloud forms um, within a quarter of a second, half a second, you can see sort of a a wave coming back towards whoever is holding the camera. And that is the shock wave. It's very hard to see. It's something more that you sense, and then wham, it is upon you. It's really quite something. I was watching a news reporter who scrambled down to the scene uh, literally minutes after it happened, and her home, her apartment, was two kilometers away. And it had blown out all of her windows, blown the doors off of its hinges two kilometers away. It just it it curls our toes and makes our skin crawl to think that this could happen. And it does lead us back to the how this did happen in the first place. And now we're being told that it's ammonium nitrate stocks that were stored for six years in a downtown port. How does that happen? In fact, uh... It's only a couple of weeks shy of seven years. Well, it happens because of colossal irresponsibility on the part of uh, the government, the port authorities, the customs officials. Apparently, there were legal cases about removing this stuff. And, uh, well, the the Lebanese government has been paralyzed on just about every front for years. It's in a state of perpetual deadlock. And I imagine that attempts to move this got stuck in the same kind of thing. But even how that much uh, ammonium nitrate ended up in Beirut is very strange. It was loaded on a ship in the former Soviet state of Georgia uh, in the Black Sea, came out into the Mediterranean, was supposed to be headed through the Suez Canal to Mozambique. I don't know why they would need so much fertilizer, but then suddenly it was diverted to Beirut. And You have to remember that for decades, Beirut has been a conduit for weapons going into um, some of the darkest corners of the Middle East. So to have all of that sitting on a a dock there, uh, it leads to lots of suspicions, uh, no evidence, but lots of suspicion about how it ended up there in the first place. I I really feel sorry for the people uh, of Beirut because they are stuck with these governments. Now there will be protests to overthrow the government, I guess, or the various factions in the government. But even if they do, I think they will just get more of the same because they have had bad, bad political leadership, corrupt political leadership for decades. We're with Matthew Fisher, uh, international affairs columnist and foreign correspondent who has uh, worked for 35 years abroad. You can follow him on Twitter, at Overseas. Highly recommend that you do that. Also highly recommend the current uh, column that I mentioned off the top for globalnews.ca. And Matthew, you do mention in your column, and I've got a couple of friends who have traveled to Beirut. It's it it's a beautiful place with beautiful people, like you said, with a government that makes life extraordinarily difficult. Uh, but you said you have come to know and love Beirut. Tell us about the Beirut that you know. Well, I've been going there for years. Uh, unfortunately, every time I go there, it's because of some kind of crisis. Either somebody's been assassinated, there's a terrorist attack, or Israel's responding to Hezbollah rocket attacks on Israel uh, by attacking the southern suburbs where Hezbollah, uh, the terrorist organization, uh, has uh, its headquarters. Uh, Every time I go for the worst of reasons, but every time the people, no matter how fraught the situation, are are so darn welcoming. It's 
every community there. It's the Sunnis, it's the Shias, it's the many uh, Christian factions, and I think there are about 10 different Christian churches there. The Maronites, uh, which is a branch of the Catholic Church, are the biggest, but uh, there is nightlife there that does not exist elsewhere in the Middle East. Uh, There's a real sort of vibrancy to the town. It moves, it has spirit. There are fabulous restaurants, but also the street food is hard to beat. The shawarmas, the falafels, uh, all of this. It it is a town that, despite all the problems that plague it, uh, is full of people who are full of life. They will get over this, but I just wish they didn't have to. They deserve a lot better than the governments they get. Although, of course, you can say people do get the governments they elect, and they have quasi-democratic elections in Lebanon, and they throw up these corrupt governments. And so in some way, I guess the people are responsible, but it's most, most unfortunate. We've all likely seen, and if you haven't, I highly recommend you hit Twitter and, and have a look, the, the visuals captured of Dr. Isra Sablani, who was having her wedding photos taken at the time of the blast and it's caught the footage was caught on camera she's okay and uh and actually it was noted that this sort of speaks to the goodness of the people that even adorned in her dream wedding moment uh when this happened the very first instinct was to look for people who needed her help and you know living in that sort of long suffering uh war zone of a beautiful city is really quite telling here well, it is telling. She is a doctor, so of course doctors feel that way. She's an, uh, uh, I have trouble pronouncing the word, but an endocrinologist uh, in the United States. But she is from the area and had married a man from Beirut. And uh, they did go ahead with that marriage, uh, despite everything that happened. Uh, and uh, one can only wish them health and happiness uh, and also, the, they were had the good fortune to be a certain distance away. Some stories are incredible. Uh, a Filipino man on a ship that was 400 yards away in the ocean from where the blast occurred, uh, he died instantly. Well, you can imagine 400 meters, 400 yards away, and in a second, your life is over. Uh, this is what happens uh, Uh, War and uh, bombs and things like this are so extremely capricious. And the whole downtown area, you know, it's built in a horseshoe around the harbor where the explosion took place. High rises, a beautiful corniche. Uh, I love to walk there in the evening. All the different groups, uh, you can identify some of them by their religious garb, are out for the walks. Nobody bothers you if you wear short pants and are in Western uh, gear as I would be, and it cools off in the evening, and it, it, it's a lovely place. All of that was hit. People all along that corniche, uh, the beachfront, uh, were affected by this as well. So uh, a lot of places that I know uh, disappeared, including a few very good restaurants that have wonderful staffs, people who work in these restaurants for decades Uh, To be a waiter, of course, in Lebanon and in many countries is a profession, not like in Canada or the U.S. where it's mostly students. That is quite something. I'm just in awe of your storytelling. Thank you very much for sharing with us today, Matthew. Really appreciate it. Well, you're most welcome and uh, good luck. There's one end of the spectrum where there are people saying, are we not going to continue to trust Dr. Henry now? as we are facing this back to school. And there's the other end of the spectrum that has parents and teachers who are literally at their the, the thread end of anxiety, worried for health and safety in a return, in a full in-class return. So we want to talk this through with someone who's very much involved and at the table. And we do have the BCTF president, Terry Mooring, on the line with us now. Hi, Terry. Hi, Jody. So did you obviously heard uh, John Horgan, Premier John Horgan, mentioning the back to school sort of uh, plan from the Premier's office perspective. What were your thoughts on that? Well, I, I was, uh, you know, happy to hear um, him talk about some flexibility at the start of the school year. Uh, and, you know, 
a lot of work and planning I know is is happening right now, um, and there's a lot of lot of implications of the changes to stage two and um, to the cohort model that you know I know districts and certainly provincially were really beginning to wrap our minds around because um, it was quite a curveball you know at, at the last moment as you know. Yes. And the implications for, in particular for secondary schools are quite broad. Um, for example, the cohort model works best um, if you're on a semester system or even a quarterly system, which is you know, a smaller length of time than semesters. Um, and so we have lots of schools, and Vancouver is one of them, where almost all the secondary schools um, are linear, on a, based on a linear model. So in the spring, all these secondary schools did all their planning, uh, all the timetabling of students, all the assignments of teachers, all that happened in June. And so now, if the district decides that they're going to need to change um, to a different system, all of that needs to be redone. And so there's really broad implications um, to some of the planning that needs to happen, and it's going to be uh, very time-consuming. And we also, you know, also there's a very real need of, uh, for schools to, you know, have that time for the personnel to get the health and safety orientation training. That's going to be really important. It's one thing you know, to get that training when you're looking at 35 to 40% of students coming back, it's quite another when it's 100% of students coming back. And so, you know, the other implication is it's possible that some teachers are going to have their assignments changed. So they may have exited in June thinking one thing and to have that changed um, for the start of the school year. So there's lots and lots of implications of the changes. And and what's needed is is time for everyone to feel confident um, when students return, and uh, and and that's really important. You know, it's all all of that planning is possible, and and there is some really um, difficult conversations going on right now, um, and it just needs to you know time needs to be given for it to to finish and for everyone to be ready for the start of the school year. And that's pretty much what Premier Horgan was saying. We have 30 mm-hmm. days here. We can, we can, there's much to be done and we're doing everything we can. And it really did, Terry, sound like obviously everybody's pulling in the same direction. Everybody has the best interests of children of all ages at heart here. Um, but there is that anxiety piece. There is that piece, as you said, like being a teacher is hard on any day. Um, as the daughter of one, two, my, my stepmother was also a teacher. I mean, Teachers work incredibly hard. And what you mentioned off the top with that sort of reorganization of uh, secondary school timetables, we can all harken back to a time where we chose our courses before the end of the year for next year, got all excited about them. And having to manage that um, on the fly while managing the cohort on the fly and learning groups and maybe PPE and who's coming to school when and who has lunch at what time and how does that how does that 120 uh, group work in in this one area of a school there's a lot to figure out did it give you any comfort i guess is my question here did it give you any comfort when premier horgan mentioned how districts differ and from school to school it very much differs and that the schools will have autonomy when it comes to making the adjustments necessary for each school well i there certainly does need to be flexibility at the at the district level uh, however there also needs to be some consistency uh, there needs to be, in, in you know, there's a, a lot of areas where there needs to be a consistent approach across the province. Um, and so those, you know, those two imperatives often uh, are in tension with each other. And, and the, certainly um, it was broadly identified the need for some cons- consistency. So I, I appreciate the Premier's comments. Um, you know, I, I know that the steering committee is, has been hard at work and there's lots of, lots of issues that need, we need to grapple with. Um, and, and I, you know, there certainly is time um, right now for that to happen. Um, we need to make sure that all of the issues are dealt with uh, in a truly collaborative way. And, and that's, you know, what we've been working towards uh, all along. Uh, and those conversations are happening right now. So, uh, you know, I always appreciate, you know, and understand that education is, is uh, important um, to this government. Um, that's really good. And I've heard, you know, consistent, consistently uh, the importance of education. And, and, you know, certainly we totally agree with that. We, we need to now make sure all the measures are in place to make sure that it's safe. Um, you know, we're perfectly able to do that. Um, but all that needs to be in place. 
Jody Vance in for Jill, continuing our chat with good friend Terry Mooring, the BCTF president, the BC Teachers Federation president, with a with a very full plate. Terry, very appreciative of your time today. I want to get to a couple of topics here. I mentioned prior to the break that um, petition that's going around, the Change.org petition, is actually now up to just shy of twenty five thousand signatures in just a couple of days. Uh, do you know who's started this, and and uh, what are you hearing from teachers who are signing it? Yeah, I'm not sure who started the petition, um, but, you know, teachers and parents are understandably concerned about the start of the school year. And, you know, that that's something that we've already highlighted uh, with our own internal survey of uh, our members. Um, health and safety is, has been top of mind. And so I, I'm not surprised that there's lots of concerns um, out there. And, you know, Again, uh, somewhat unfortunate that some of this uh, work wasn't done before the announcement so that some a- more answers could have been provided at the at the announcement um, by the Ministry of Education last week. Um, but, you know, we're certainly uh, in communication with our members around, you know, the fact that the working groups are, are continuing to meet and the steering committee and those conversations are ongoing. But, you know, it's it's difficult when con- when these kinds of concepts are introduced and there just aren't enough answers for them. And so, you know, those answers are what we're working through right now. So one of the things about this and the, the, the gentleman that is noted here, Edmund Luck, as the one who started this petition to Adrian Dix, is about keeping the return to school in BC optional or voluntary. Mm-hmm. Is there... Are you hearing of of options for parents who feel uh, uncomfortable with their uh, putting their child back in school full time, say their high school or back in school? Uh, will they have the option to uh, have online learning? Will teachers have the option of of conducting the online side as opposed to being in class if they're fearful? Well, and that's a, a really a conversation that needs to be had um, because you know I haven't. Um, heard much from the ministry around, um, you know, voluntary versus optional. And we certainly heard at the press conference that, um, you know, there are some measures in place. And, you know, both, I think the Premier and and, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry talked about the fact that we, the system does accommodate uh, students um, and and teachers, in fact, already that already that have um, sort of compromised immune systems or or what have you. The problem Mm -hmm. is that this is on a much bigger scale. Um, and it's more than just um, students, I realize, that are that are perhaps um, immune compromised or have medical uh, compromise. It's also a comfort level on the, on, uh, the parts of, of families um, in terms of, of uh, making the decision to have their students return to school. And so I think that the best um, thing that we can do is present a really solid plan to families that really gives them a lot of comfort around what the measures are in place uh, to keep uh, their their children um, and their children's teachers uh, safe. And so I think what we need to really do uh, is, again, allow the time for the working groups to do their work, and then, then our, our really solid plan needs to be clearly communicated with families. I think right now we're really um, operating in uh, an environment where there just are more questions than answers, and, and that does spawn, you know, a lot of understandable stress and anxiety. And so that's what's really needed right now is a, a lot of answers to a lot of very detailed questions, really practical questions. Some of those answers can happen at the provincial level, and some of them will need to be worked out at the district level. And there are when, as you said, when not all the answers are clear, there are many assumptions made. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and interesting, your messaging has been quite clear when it comes from the teacher's perspective. We need health and safety training. We need to know what it, what is expected. And we need to know what the pivot looks like that Premier John Horgan had mentioned. You know, once we get back to school, if we need to adjust, we will adjust. And Dr. Bonnie Henry has said over and over again, you know, we're very lucky to be uh, in the position that we are, that we can go full time back to school. And if that changes, then it will evolve. And people are then worried, what does evolve look like? Like, what is our next thing? What did we learn in June? What do we do? There's a lot of that anxious piece. And out of that came a really interesting back and forth on social media about the size of classrooms and to truly have kids sitting two meters apart, how many kids would fit in any one classroom? And the, the debate started going back and forth because it's very dependent on the school and how space will be utilized. There's a lot of that to be answered as well. 
There really is. Um, and so schools are going to have to look at their spaces because the reality is, um, you know, the maximum class size uh, in most um, in, in most districts from, from grade 4 to grade 12 is 30. And so with 30 desks in a classroom, you know, physically distancing isn't possible. And so, uh, you know, it was possible in the spring because we didn't have all students return. And so that was, was completely possible. And so, you know, when you're, in particular, uh, when you're looking at upper intermediate and um, secondary, um, you know, just sh- the sheer number of students in classrooms means that physical distancing is, isn't, uh, isn't a reality. You know, in, in primary classes, you know, a lot of classrooms are revolve, like we, most classrooms or a lot of primary classrooms don't, don't have desks. They have tables and chairs and those sorts of configurations. So there's a lot of implications to, you know, what is this going to look like in classrooms? Um, and so, you know, if if you're going to uh, talk about physical distancing and say that that's something that's necessary, and we've certainly heard that over and over again, then, you know, you need to have fewer students in classrooms. And one more for you, Terry, before I let you go, uh, the news this week in Alberta making masks mandatory in public schools. What are your thoughts? What's the Teachers Federation's uh, perspective on that? So this is the... This is, you know, one of the basic things that really does need to be worked out because we're hearing in the public over and over again that you need to either physically distance and if you, if you can't physically distance, you need to wear a mask. This is what we're hearing publicly. And so when that messaging um, that we're hearing publicly doesn't match with the school system, um, that's, you know, where we have issues. And so that is something that I know is being discussed right now at the Health and Safety Work Group. Um, that is, it's a major issue that, that needs to be addressed. Uh, and, you know, and I, I know I've, I've heard a lot of the questions and, I, and some of the answers, um, you know, just don't make sense in an edu- education setting, as I say, because physical distancing is, is, you know, just not possible in most of our schools that, that are at maximum capacity already. And so, you know, so then what, what is the conversation around mask wearing? Uh, you know, we were pleased that government uh, is putting money directed to uh, mask wearing, that, uh, it, that masks will be supplied uh, upon request. And, and I'll notice in the recommendations that it does recommend um, that students wear masks when they're on buses, on school buses. Yes. And so this is still um, an area that needs a lot more conversation. Will you keep us posted on what you hear? And as always, we appreciate your time so very much, Terry. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jody. Jody Vance in for Jill today and this week for that matter. Glad to be welcoming to the program good friend of the show, Ian Young. He is the Vancouver correspondent for the South China Morning Post. Always a pleasure to have you on, Ian. Thanks for doing this. No problem, Jody. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And always learning from your columns, I have to say, this one caught my eye and immediately Ben Dooley, our producer, and I were like, yes, we need to try and get Ian on to talk this through. I want you to help uh, help our listener understand Canada's COVID-19 blind spot. Yeah, I think um, uh, what's emerged in uh, the recent recent days is that um, uh, there is a big disparity uh, in uh, the way that COVID-19 is affecting various races and various ethnicities. And uh, one thing that caught my eye was that out of Toronto, um, uh, East Asian people have fared quite well uh, during this pandemic in terms of the number of infections. Uh, but that's not true for all Asians. And in fact, um, other Asian groups, other Asian ethnicities have suffered um, much, much worse in terms of infection rates. Uh, you know, I, I think that uh, Southeast Asians, for instance, um, are more than um, uh, eight times worse off than uh, East Asians. When I say East Asians, mainly we're talking about Chinese people. I think that the population of East Asians in Toronto is um, 85% Chinese. Eight times yes. higher. Yes. To what do you attribute that by uh, un- un- unearthing these facts and stats? Yeah, I think it's difficult to sort of tease out causality. Obviously, there's something going on there. Um, but I think the, the, the concurrent uh, income statistics uh, also give us some clues about what's happening here. Um, and I think that what we're seeing is that people who occupy uh, high-risk, low-paying professions... Uh, such as such as uh, working in care, working on farms, working in agriculture, working in meat processing plants, as opposed to 
higher paid jobs that you might be able to do from home, they are at higher risk when you're in those professions. And those tend to be racialised industries. You tend to see, for instance, uh, a lot of Filipino workers uh, in the care industry. Uh, we see a lot of Latin American workers, uh, temporary farm workers and things like that in, um, you know, in, in agriculture, which are you know, another high risk area and meat processing and things like that. Um, there is another wrinkle on that. Uh, it could have something to do with masks. Uh, East Asian people uh, certainly tend to wear masks to a very high degree, but it's very difficult to sort of pin it all down. I want to get into uh, mask wearing. You and I have been back and forth about masks since, well, since almost pre-pandemic, I would say. Um, and I certainly, I certainly urge people to read your blog about that because it is before any of us knew what COVID-19 even was, you were you were warning us that perhaps this would be our future. I want to get into that a little bit in the second segment with you, but let's stick a little here. We had Dr. Jason Kindrichuk, uh, the University of Manitoba virologist, on yesterday on the program. He was taking calls, and, and he's always got this interesting perspective, at the, the ability to sort of break things down in, in super simplistic terms, a very complex situation we're finding ourselves in. And his notes in your or his quotes that you have in, in your piece your current piece in the south china morning post are, really stand out um and and serve as a reminder whether it be science-based or otherwise just really truly getting to the facts here is so important yeah i mean um i think the temptation is to sort of take uh, take these um, statistics and say, oh, well, this is what they mean. They certainly mean this is something to do with, say, genetics. But I think that Jason was quite good at um, sort of separating um, that line of argument and saying, well, there's not actually much evidence to suggest that what we're looking at here is a genetic difference. And I think what it comes back to is um, if you compare all the data, it does look very much like um, that uh, because we have an unequal society... Um, people are experiencing the pandemic unequally. Um, and, and that comes down to all sorts of socioeconomic reasons. And so when people respond to, to, to data like this and say, oh, well, this is not about race, this is about, this is about income and things like that, we'll say, well, yes, but you know, race isn't just about genetics. Race is about income. Race is about the kind of jobs that people do and the kinds of strata that people occupy in society. And that's a complicated issue. It very much is. And you bring up both poverty and racism in the piece. Again, if you'd like to read it, South China Morning Post, scmp.com. Uh, look for Ian Young's uh, latest. But it's it's an interesting piece because in the United States, when speaking with, with scientists south of the border, specifically Dr. Peter Hotez, who's a vaccinologist in Houston, Texas, has been pointing to uh, the black community, the black American community and indigenous community in the United States saying because of close po proximity of how uh, the neighborhoods are set up, that social, physical distancing is next to impossible and, and masks are not uh, a, a large piece. Certainly we've identified that in the United States. It's almost a stigma to wear one. It can cause a fight. To, mm. In some instances, I mean, there's a, there is a lot at play here that that comes that's that's not just genetic based. I guess is my point. Yeah, I think a lot of it is um, your main factors are going to be behavioural or yeah. um, something to do with the characteristics of of a particular demographic. You know, um, what kind of jobs they do and things like that that aren't necessarily in their control. You know, that that um, certain circumstances aren't necessarily in their control in the immediate sense, you know, and that could it be yeah. uh, an absence of physical distancing or it could be a tendency to use masks, for instance, in terms of behavioural. Uh, there's not necessarily that evidence, though, about this being about genetics, but looking at the numbers, it, could very, it, it looks very much like it is about race, and race is a complicated subject. It very much is. And eye-opening as as uh, Dr. Kinderchuk says that that the income divide piece is big and when we bring this subject back to British Columbia and when the stats started to first get released we we started to look at at just gender because mm. again you know the blind spot is that there haven't been a lot of um, stats released. I remember you and I had the conversation when, when uh, just the the area codes or the cities where the positive test cases of COVID nineteen uh, were spiking, and lo and behold, look at Richmond with a big fat zero on it. Um, sure. You know, there's a lot to unpack in terms of of the stats. But I looked at it and or those early statistics and those modeling numbers, and I thought, huh. 
a woman in her 50s is pretty much the highest risk. Mm. <laughs> you know, that's me. And then I started thinking, I'm like, why is it me? Well, it's mm. because I'm running around with the kid and I'm going and doing the groceries and I'm going here and I'm there and I'm taking care of, you know, my elders. And I'm so I I can I can see where my role more mm. so than my ethnicity would come into play here. Sure. I think um, to tease it all apart, I think you need more data. I mean, that's always the refrain yeah. is, you know, we need more data. And I think Dr. Kinderchuk said that as, as, as much himself, um, that if we want to tease apart um, uh, what are the racial components, what are the income components, how do they overlap, you need to sort of at least cross-reference um, uh, various ethnicities with, with, with um, the sliding scale of income to work out how they work relative to each other. Now, Toronto didn't provide um, detail on that level. But what they did provide is very, very interesting. Uh, and it's so, the sort of information that has not been provided in BC. Now, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry and others have been very reluctant to uh, provide, uh, for instance, race-based data. And e even um, location data has been a little bit woolly. Uh, but what they have provided has tended to mirror the Toronto experience, at least insofar as Richmond, the most Chinese city in the world outside of Asia, having um, the lowest uh, infection rate in all of Metro Vancouver, you know, something like half that of uh, the city of Vancouver. And that's something that I think uh, does at least mirror what's happening in Toronto. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett this week. And I got to tell you, if you're on Twitter... Please follow me on Twitter at Jody Vance. While you're there, also look for Ian Young. His handle, Ian James Young 70, the number 70. He is the South China Morning Post Vancouver correspondent, one of the best follows on Twitter, and obviously an exceptional journalist. Ian, I'm always happy to speak with you. And your most recent article, um, sort of peeling back the stats, uh, Toronto-based, but when it comes to um, COVID-19 numbers and ethnicity, poverty, racism. Uh, th there's so much to it. I, it's a heady read, and I do suggest our listener have a look at scmp.com. I want to spend this segment, though, talking to you, giving you an opportunity to really take some credit here, because you and I spoke so early on. We kind of got to know each other before the pandemic. We were actually allowed to sit in the same room and not be more than you know two meters apart and really talk to one another. And you educated me on mask use and you've january, blogged about it. it you've yeah. it was january, january yeah. yeah it was and it was really it resonated with me so much ian and i'm grateful for it it has made it normal in my head for me as a north american to be uncomfortable and then to bring my head around to we're just late adapters here are we not yeah i think so i think that um uh people can get used to wearing masks i wear a mask um when i go out uh it's no it's, it's not a big deal. We shouldn't think of it as a big deal. Um, you know, and, and you look at places like Japan and, and Taiwan and Hong Kong, people wear them as a matter of course during this pandemic and to an extent wore it before the pandemic as well with flu and things like that. Um, so it doesn't have to be this, this big scary thing and it might offer us a pathway, you know, to some sort of normality during uh, this pandemic, at least until we have an effective vaccine and it is in our arms and it is working, um, which might not be soon, you know, sadly. Um, so, so, you know, I, th I think masks, masks do offer us a way out of that. Why are we so afraid of them? In North America, what, what is it? What is it? Uh, it? It is a cultural thing. I think that you know masks weren't weren't exactly commonplace in Hong Kong before before SARS. Um, but SARS back in um, 2003 gave Hong Kong a very big scare, and uh, to that extent, mask wearing became normalised. And that was where I first started wearing masks. And in fact, when I um, resumed wearing face masks here in Vancouver during COVID-19. I started by um, wearing masks that I still had left over from 2003 from back in Hong Kong. Um, so there's always been that in the back of my head that this is something um, uh, that is a valid, um, a valid response to a pandemic, a valid response to a disease threat like this. Uh, that's not something that North Americans in general have had to experience, except for doctors, of course. Um, hopefully... Uh, this normalizes it. Hopefully that, um, uh, that what we're seeing now is, is various public health officials get behind it. Uh, people are going to see that this is an opportunity. It's not a threat to your freedom. It's not, it's not you know, someone intruding on your rights. This is an opportunity for you to go about your life and for other people 
to be allowed to go about their lives in a, 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 in, in a more safe fashion than without masks. That is such an important statement because there are people that are like, it's my right, it's my personal freedom to not wear a mask. It's like, no, actually putting on the mask improves your personal freedom. Yeah, that it argument does may... not... It, it, does, yeah. it just would not fly in East Asia. And I think that... Um, uh, there are all sorts of reasons for that. I think mostly it's historical, but you know, there's also um, aspects about communal uh, communal attitudes uh, towards towards society, uh, and there's also, of course, um, the fact that social distancing is harder to achieve in a more crowded place like, say, Hong Kong or Tokyo than it is in Vancouver. So the imperative is different, but the outcomes hopefully can be mirrored. Hopefully, we can achieve the same sort of outcomes. Um, that, 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 you know, East Asian places have, have enjoyed. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation with you, because it, it's not a big debate. It's not an argument. It's not, it is just what it is. It's culturally happening elsewhere on the planet out of necessity. And now the necessity is upon us here. And if we just relax about it and wear the mask for now, not forever, and yet pick them up again when next we are in this position or we need to do an errand or have somebody in our household who is uh, sick with the flu, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, a way to keep our droplets to ourselves. We're learning a lot here. And the way you explain it seems, like you said, it seems to be the normalization of mask use uh, for us here in BC. Yeah, I, I think that we're in a better situation than, for instance, south of the border, where it's become such a heavily politicised issue. It's somewhat, somewhat politicised here, um, mm. but not to anywhere near the degree that we're seeing in, in, in the states south of the border. Um, and that's a good thing. My goodness, can you imagine, um, on top of all of the drama that we're dealing with and all of the, you know, the, the sort of tragedy to do with COVID-19, if the issue was politicised and if the handling of the pandemic had become intensely politicised. And it, it, it hasn't. You know, there's been some, but it hasn't. Not really here in Canada. No, certainly not. And even here in British Columbia, unlike in other provinces, having our provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, going out of her way to not make masks mandatory and yet saying, I absolutely encourage mask use in any situation where physical distancing is not possible. I think that's, that's an, stopping just short of I told you to wear a mask. That's an excellent way to put it is that if you can't physically distance, wear a mask. Now, um, uh, whether or not there needs to be there need to be mandates and mandates, obviously, the past couple of days have been a very hot subject here in here in Vancouver. You know, that is a question for public health officials. That's not so much a question of the science. That's something to do with the social sciences. It's to do with policy. How do you how do you best get people to wear masks and the answer may not be mandates um the answer may be that you know you use a softly softly approach i don't know but at least now there does seem to be a sort of consensus that masks if you can't socially distance are a good idea and i think that people are, are, are coming on board with that and you know what? Interesting. The words are lightly, lightly. The light touch is exactly the wording that CEO of TransLink Kevin Desmond used at the press conference this morning with TransLink announcing that masks will be mandatory, but the regulation, the regulatory piece and the policing piece is going to be a light touch. It's going to be more like, please, let's do this because it's the right thing to do, as mm. opposed to, you know, you can't you can't come on the bus unless you can prove that you are allowed to not wear a mask. I it mean, could be that peer pressure is a better incentive for people to wear masks than yeah. the threat of arrest. It could be that um, if you do start arresting people, there's going to be this big sort of uh, you know United States style backlash against the heavy-handed approach. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know, it could be, of course, that we're wrong and that mandates are absolutely the way to go. Demanded mandates for mask wearing, but a lot of places have not had broad mandates, broad legal mandates uh, to demand mask wearing, and yet people have warned them in general. You know, I mean, uh, for instance, Hong Kong and, and, and Japan um, uh, were very reluctant to introduce mandates for masks, but the public did it themselves. The public themselves uh, took that initiative as a kind and um, thoughtful response to looking after their neighbours as well as themselves. I love that as a way to wrap this up. Thank you so much for your time as always, Ian. Such a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you, Jody. 
Jody Vance in for Jill this week. Time to pivot away from some of the heavier topics and subjects and connect with someone who is a bright shining light of uh, being well, eating well, staying fit, farm to table, sustainability, and getting out and enjoying your farmer's market and being fearless at what you do with that food to put it on your table, whether it be for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Chef Ned Bell is with us. Hi, Chef. Good afternoon, Jody. How are you? I'm great. I feel like it's been way too long since you and I connected. I'm following along on your social media, on your adventures, and we'll get to the new Naramata Inn uh, in the next segment. But I want to talk to you specifically for our listener. What should we be eating? What should we be picking up at our farmer's market? What's super in season right now? Oh my gosh. Well, <laughs> it's an endless at this time of year in beautiful British Columbia. It really depends on on where you live, of course, we, uh, we're, we're here in the Okanagan, but, uh, you know, down in Vancouver, um, you know, there's some spectacular farmer's markets dotted around, uh, around the city, depending on the day and the, and, and the day of week and the, and the place, of course. I mean, right now, uh, the Fraser Valley, uh, Vancouver Island and the Okanagan, the bread baskets of our province is producing some extraordinary things. I'm thinking, you know, we just came through cherry season. We're in apricots right now. We have peaches coming off the tree, off the tree any moment. Um, you know, I drove through Chilliwack yesterday and corn is coming. Uh, corn is here. And, you know, that's an exciting time of year for me. Mm-hmm. And as you know, I'm a sustainable seafood advocate. So if I can get my hands on some wild BC salmon or wild Pacific halibut, I'm, uh, I'm a pretty happy guy. I actually had somebody talking to me about um, uh, some some seafood that they had had that were done that were farmed above ground. The aquaculture. You and I have talked about this before, sort of when it was in its infancy. Where are we at with that? Yeah, well, great question. How much time do you have, Jody? Unfortunately, aquaculture is a gigantic <laughs> conversation, and uh, you know we've been actually farming fish since the, the days of the Romans. So aquaculture is nothing new. Um, of course, like wild fisheries, there are challenges within the farm raising of animals, uh, whether you're doing it on land or in the ocean. But of course, you know, there's no such thing as a black and white conversation around uh, around seafood. It is often quite gray. And, you know, for me, I look at I look at shellfish aquaculture as a spectacular um, choice when it comes to uh, cultivation or the or the growing of seafood. Uh, you know, land-based aquaculture, where I live up here in the Okanagan, we actually grow an Arctic char or a char species in the middle of a, an apple orchard in Oliver. And so, you know, like my previous life as the executive chef of OceanWise, you know, if you're looking for responsible seafood, look for OceanWise recommended seafood, um, you know, but there are many, many, many choices uh, when it comes to uh, wild, well-managed fisheries and responsible aquaculture. And, you know, my new thing now and, and certainly in the last, um, you know, six months is to really been hyper-focusing on who is growing my food. I really want to make sure that I understand where it's coming from, um, who's growing it, and am I paying a fair price for their harvest or their catch? How do we do that? How do we follow in your footsteps? Is there a resource um, sort of central or is it just you got to have the social network where you ask a friend and a friend tells you, well, this farmer is, I think, the way they do and how the cost over there. Is it word of mouth or is there a resource for this? You know, I think it's broad. I mean, it, again, it sort of depends on where you live. You know, Pemberton, the Pemberton Valley has some extraordinary farmers. Squamish has some great artisans, you know, up and down the Okanagan, of course, all over Vancouver Island. I mean, there's just so much deliciousness in and around the place that we get to live here in BC. And really, it is relationship driven. It really is focused on on the people that you may know or stumble across or, or hear about. Um, but then, you know, I really like to put the onus on us as the consumer to make sure that we're continuing to support those growers and those farmers throughout the seasons and throughout the years. And so that it's not just a one-time purchase, it's a purchase that you're committed to for, you know, the season, whether it's a CSA box, a community-supported fishery uh, membership, you know, the Skipper Auto folks that are based in Vancouver that have been going strong for 10 years. This this pandemic has actually enabled them to grow their membership because I think more and more consumers are 
are conscious and concerned and connected to the food system that they rely so heavily on. All of us do. And, you know, gosh, are we fortunate or what? We live in BC. I mean, we have some of the best products anywhere in the world, you know, moments away from our back doors. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't argue with people often, but, you know, when people are, are, are commenting to me that, you know, oh, farmers markets are expensive or, oh, you know, local, local food is expensive. I mean, I, I like to, to challenge them by saying there's no such thing as cheap food. You know, something, someone or the thing has paid the price, whether it's the species, the farmer, the fisher and or the ecosystem has paid the price for that food to be cheap. And uh, I just I just don't think that we as consumers, uh, you know, realize that we have a direct relationship with uh, with that system and we need to support it. And that's why I wanted to have you on today for precisely what you just said there, that responsibility to understand what you're paying for, why there is that when you think you're paying a premium, what you're actually doing is paying for sustainability, responsibility, and, and supporting your local farmer. I mean, the, the mass production abroad and, and, and the carbon footprint that it might have taken to transport that thing from there to here when it's available in our backyard, it, it, if you just weigh that a little bit and you taste them side by each, you're going to find that the one in your backyard is way tastier. That's the first payoff there. And you really did teach me about that and the OceanWise sticker. I don't, I don't buy anything that doesn't have OceanWise on it or I have uh, received it from somebody who has, has caught it uh, uh, responsibly. We did have um, a, a, a local organic form, farmer on the Forstbauer farm, and uh, they were telling us about how you can now go to your farmers or you can go to the farmers market website and hit live local, and you can actually order from direct from the farmer. You can get to know the farmer and order that, and then go buy your local farmer's market and it's all waiting for you there just to pick up and the farmer knows what you're buying so that helps them be um viable through a pandemic because this is tough on on local growers yeah i would agree i mean you know the challenge we have as consumers is that you know especially maybe now more than ever our worlds have been flipped upside down we are you know our our daily routines are are not are not a routine at all maybe Maybe they are now, but months into this this challenge, you know, what does the future look like over the six over the next six months or eighteen months, as as we look ahead? And you know, I feel as a consumer this incredible responsibility to try and make sure that the region I am in at that moment is supported. And you know, those dollars that you're spending in that place, that community, you know, whether it's Burnaby Heights or Port Moody or, you know, uh, downtown Vancouver or, or, or wherever else you may be living, by spending money in your community, you're keeping that money in the community. And, you know, I mean, I used to call myself globally inspired and locally created. I love flavors from elsewhere. And, and you know, that's what Vancouver and Canada is all about. We're, you know, we, we love to celebrate diversity. Uh, and, and to me, diversity is delicious. But, you know, when mm. you can look an, into uh, your fridge or your icebox or your freezer um, and, and you can put eyes on where that thing came from and you know for sure that you paid a fair price for it. There's value in that. There's value in, in maybe looking at that commodity uh, you know, or ingredient in, in a slightly different way. I think you actually care for it a little bit more. I think you actually um, don't treat it as disposable when, when you are paying a fair price for it. It's sort of like you're, you know, one of your favorite you know, pairs of clothing or pairs of shoes, you know, you, you maybe give it just a little more love than the ones that, uh, that you kind of bang around in. And, you know, for me, food deserves that kind of respect. You know, it's the one thing that we all share. We have to eat. And in this time, I challenge you know, good, healthy food around the table. Um, you know, whatever table that may be is, uh, is one of those places that I, I feel is quite um, as as we get through this, and you know, chefs, cooks, um, I think that we are we are leaders in a challenging time. We're inspiring people to eat deliciously, and you know, I, I, I'm not against bringing in things from other places, and chocolate and tea and lemon, lemon and sugar and vanilla. None of those things are grown here, uh, right. and we consume them every day. So you know, don't get me wrong. I love to uh, I love to taste 
um, you know, other places. But I do think that BC has an extraordinary taste of place. I had the blueberries in my head. I want blueberries from here. That's an important Absolutely. piece for me. You know what I mean? Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett, continuing our chat with Chef Ned Bell. You've likely seen him on any of the television stations in British Columbia talking about OceanWise Seafood as the executive chef for OceanWise for many years. I've had the great good fortune of uh, eating Ned Bell's uh, delicious food over many segments done together. The halibut with the blueberry relish stands out significantly for me, Ned. You always serve up such delicious food as you did at you at the Four Seasons for so many years. But now you've really turned your whole life uh, upside down and landed directly on your feet and firmly in Naramata. Can you explain to our listener what your latest project is with your beloved Kate? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I, uh, I feel very, very fortunate to, uh, to have this exciting project um, in front of us. You know, we, Kate and I actually met in Aramata. I was born up here. In, and we've had a, a family summer home up here for decades and decades. And so really it's coming home. Our, our, our middle son was, uh, was born here. And, and uh, you know, we, of course, love Vancouver. And, and as Kate likes to say, we didn't, uh, we didn't leave Vancouver. We just added Naramata. But we uh, we decided to uh, to dive deep and and we've acquired um, the Naramata Inn. So we now uh, just launched about eight weeks ago the the, the restaurant at Naramata Inn, and we also have twelve rooms at the Naramata Heritage Inn and Spa. And we took possession along with our two partners back on February twenty first. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. a week later, um, you know, the world changed, and so it was uh, it was pretty. Uh, We've been working on the project for about two years, and so it wasn't uh, it wasn't going to derail us because we we'd had some some clear visions over the next uh, three, five, seven years ahead as to what we're uh, what we're wanting to to contribute to here in the village of Nerva, with uh, you know amongst our businesses. So we, we yeah we opened this incredible place back in June, and uh, you know under COVID rules and regulations we are operational. Um, you know, and, and recommendations, of course, that Dr. Bonnie and uh, and Adrian Dix and the entire province has been uh, working their tail off to try and, you know, give us this framework. Um, I have to give a shout out to the BC Restaurant Association, too, for, for guiding us and leading us into uh, into a challenging time. Inherently, the restaurant business is, uh, is a very safe um, and highly regulated business. And so, you know, we already uh, live with health and safety um, you know, w- w- the difference for us is that, uh, you know, our opening uniforms had masks and PPE and, uh, you know, we're, we're just living, we're living under the new, um, you know, this, 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 uh, this, this new normal, I guess, as everyone's calling it. And, uh, and I don't know that it's going to end anytime soon. So, you know, we, uh, we're proud to, uh, to be open for business and, and we're having a good time. Well, watching you uh, carry forward after many of us were just, you know, sitting at our kitchen tables doing puzzles and being worried. I'm following along on Instagram and you're literally like building out and pulling back ancient tiles and finding other flooring and adding this and doing that. You just you were an inspiration then as you always continue to be Ned. So I want to give our listener and I want to know uh, the opportunity to 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 come to the Naramata Inn either for dinner or to stay there. Um, bookings are, is it family friendly? Is it sort of that romantic getaway vibe? Uh, can, what, what's coming to dinner like? Yeah, well, we, so uh, Naramata Inn um, is, uh, is our address for, uh, for rooms and restaurants. You know, we, we're really uh, a restaurant with rooms. We call ourselves uh, lodging and restaurant because, you know, we're unlike our Four Seasons days, we're not five-star. Uh, you know, we're in a 112-year-old heritage house here uh, on the point in Naramata. It's just this incredibly magical village. Naramata is already world-class. There's already so many extraordinary wineries here and so many wonderful people doing incredible things. But what it might have might have been missing was just a spectacular restaurant to anchor it. And uh, Kate, my wife, who of course is uh, you know c- come through two years of of this incredible battle with uh, with cancer treatments, is now on the other side of that. Although still still battling, it seems like every day she's uh, she's in the rehab and recovery phase. 
so many women in the, in this province in this country battle with. Um, you know, we are, uh, I would say, premium execution, uh, not fine dining, supporting exclusively local farmers, artisans, and growers. I call my food French narration. So, you know, <laughs> classically rooted in French technique, but really a, a hyper-focus on the season and a hyper-focus on the region. And I have to tell you, Jody. And delicious. <laughs> I bet it is. And you know what? Uh, this girl here with two thumbs pointing at herself has a birthday coming up, and I just decided where I'm going for dinner. So well, thank you, my you, friend, as always. I will. I will. I'm going to do that. And would you please uh, send Kate our very best, that warrior, how she shares her journey through breast cancer is helping more than she could possibly know for members of my family and beyond. So thank you to you and to Kate for this. And we'll look forward to seeing you soon, my friend. Thank you, Jody. I appreciate it. Have a, have a lovely rest of your... Is it wet down there? It's wet up here. Strangely. It is. We, we just got some rain. It's just watered the yard for us. And then it's going to clear up a little bit this afternoon, as according to Mark Madriga, of course. Fires, so. unfortunately. So, Well, let's get those put out. Thank you so much, Ned Bell. We'll look forward to seeing you in just a couple of weeks. Okay, Jody, I have a halibut burger with blueberry relish with your name on it.